Welcome to another episode of the Behold Your God podcast. I'm Matthew Robinson, director of Media Gratier, and I'm here again this week with Dr. John Snyder, pastor of Christ Church New Albany and the author and teacher and presenter on the Behold Your God study series produced by Media Gratier. We're continuing on in a series on bereavement, um, the grief that we experience from the loss, the death of loved ones in our lives. And this is uh, the fourth in that series. We've been getting help from our brothers and sisters who've gone before us in Christian history, seeing how they have been sustained by the Lord in their times of grief. And as we are wont to do, we are returning to the life of John Newton in this podcast. Uh, we'll be looking at how the Lord sustained him when he lost his wife, his beloved wife of 40 years. And we'll be pulling some quotes from a book that Crossway published by Jonathan Aitken called John Newton, From Disgrace to Amazing Grace. And we're really just going and pulling the, uh, the original quotes that have been collected by Mr. Aitken here in the book. Um, John, why don't you set this up for us? Well, Newton, um, we know, yeah, late 18th century into the early 19th century, leader among the evangelicals. So uh, the work that God did in the evangelical revival under Whitfield or Wesley or others like that, um, basically Newton is a second generation effect of that. And um, we want to look at his, um, his relationship with his wife just a little bit because it was one of those rare happy marriages. Um, many, many of the men that were famous in that day traveled a lot and, and to some degree neglected their marriages. But Newton stayed put in basically two pastors, Olney out in the country and uh, London. Newton married his childhood sweetheart, Mary Catlett. Now, there's a little confusion there when you start to read his letters because he talks about Polly and Mary. They're the same girl, right? Polly is his nickname for Mary. In 1750, he married her, and he always considered her to be far superior to him in every way. He never got over that. Now, all of his friends were a little confused because they thought, well, as Newton, especially as an older Christian, they thought he was the more mature and deep Christian than his wife. Newton never thought that. They thought, well, Newton, you're more intellectual, more witty, you know, more amiable, and Newton never thought in any area that he excelled her. He always um, admired her to the point that throughout his, um, you know, his letters, he talks a lot about the fact that he feels that one of, the sin, one of the sins of his life as an adult was that he thought too much of her. He idolized her. Mm. Uh, after seven years of courtship, during which Newton is a real scoundrel, um, they do get married. He's converted. They get married. And they have decades of a very happy marriage. And through their letters, especially his letters to her, we see an ever-deepening, you know, spiritually blossoming friendship. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a very encouraging marriage to look at. As you mentioned, they're married for about 40 years. Um, but during that time, Mary doesn't really enjoy robust health. In fact, uh, through the late 1780s, she goes through bouts of poor health that confined her to the, to, to the bed for weeks at a time. And this happened in God's providence to occur while John was incredibly busy. Uh, this was the period in his life where he's trying to help Wilberforce and the others with the abolition of slavery in the UK. And so that must have been a tremendous stress on them. Yeah, we read in Newton's uh, biography that in the year 1788, 
as you mentioned, Mary had had these bouts of bad health, and so um, during one of those times, she secretly goes to a doctor. She feels uh, a painful swelling in her breast. She goes to a surgeon in London. She doesn't want John to worry, so she goes uh, without telling him. She returns home after getting news from the doctor, and she has to break it to her husband. Uh, the doctor has lar- located a large tumor, and the doctor said it's inoperable, so the only option he gave her was to take laudanum. Now, laudanum was the opiate of the day. It was the strongest drug he could give her. So he said, you can take laudanum and try to live kind of a, a quiet life and enjoy, you know, the next couple of months, but, but there's nothing more that we could do. Um, we don't know exactly why, but Mary has a real aversion to the drug, whether it's the side effects or a philosophical version, but she can't take the drug or won't take the drug. And so as a result, the next six months, um, we find that her life is filled with excruciating pain and Newton trying to nurse her through that. In 1789, John notes that God had answered his prayers. He was crying out to the Lord that God would grant his wife some relief from the pain. And, and he writes that that did occur, but the cancer is still there. Um, Newton is equally concerned, though, about her spiritual life. And, and one reason that we've chosen to talk about uh, Mary's death and how God walked John Newton through it is because there, there's a peculiar circumstance here. Uh, at least we don't find it in the others that we mentioned, but we do find it in life. Right. And that is that she goes through a low period spiritually that is so shocking to John that to him, the spiritual struggles she feels uh, at the edge of death are, are worse than the physical struggles. Yeah, let me read a quote um, from that time. From the spring of 1789 to the autumn of 1790, Polly's faith in the face of her impending demise was, in her husband's words, exemplary, cheerful, and wonderful. She annotated passages in every book of the Bible. She studied Dr. Isaac Watts' versions of the Psalms and highlighted her favorite verses in the only hymns with underlinings. But in October of 1790, she became terrified of dying and she lost her faith. She also became indifferent to her husband, Her confusion extended to losing a sense of the truth of the Bible and the presence of God. Such dramatic reversals of all that she had previously believed in and loved came at a time when her death was imminent. Newton was shattered by these things in his wife, which he described as the high watermark of my trial, hard to bear indeed. And, you know, you mentioned, John, that she had been in extreme, like excruciating pain. Then the pain seems to stop, but then this happens. And so one can't help but wonder whether this is a, a physiological phenomenon, uh, that, that, or it's at least connected to it. It's in no way removed from it. And as you mentioned, this does happen in life. We've, we've seen this. Some of our listeners may have seen it in their loved ones that they've walked through with terminal uh, diseases or nearing end of life care, or maybe even early onset dementia or whatever. Um, I remember hearing an account of Lloyd Jones. I think this is in his Romans six sermons where he gives an anecdote about a person that he knew was a very gentle, godly man. And he reached a point in his old age where something happened and he just, he would just scream obscenities 
from his bed. Um, he would curse and blaspheme and do these terrible things. And so Lloyd-Jones had to go and, and minister to the family who were shattered and, and destroyed. What, what's wrong with our beloved father and you know, husband? And his counsel to them as a medical doctor and as a doctor of the soul was, look, this man, whatever his name was, this is not him. This is a physiological thing that is happening as his body's dying. His mind, his, the blood vessels in his mind, whatever, they're dying. And who he is, is hid with Christ. And you can be confident that who he is, is not being demonstrated by this. This is not some change, some fundamental change in who he is. This is an effect of the disease or the dying. And, um, and, and to, to be comforted by the fact that who that our identity, if we're believers, is in Christ. And, and it's not subject to these kinds of terrible things that often do happen to us at the end of, of life. Yeah, we, we never want to give the impression that if a person loves Christ enough, that there's going to be just this, this um, easy sailing and no doubts and fears, and you just gloriously go from this life to the next, you know. Um, I mean, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress is a helpful picture there. Pilgrim walks with Christ, you know, walks faithfully on the path. But when he gets to, the, to death, to that river that he must pass through to go into the celestial city, he almost falters. Yeah. Um, so, it's the last enemy. Yeah, yeah. And so while Christ is the master of death, that does not mean that, he's, that it's not an enemy. Um, as we continue to read uh, the account, we find that uh, about a month before Mary dies, a very close friend uh, of Mary and John's, a man named John Thornton, died. He was a wealthy businessman who sacrificially gave to the evangelical cause for 30 years plus. Um, he was the one that helped John get a church through his um, clout and influence. He was able to um, encourage the Church of England, which at that time was pretty averse to any evangelical. Um, you have to understand that when, New when Newton was first converted, um, he followed George Whitfield around and listened to his sermons. And Whitfield gave him a lot of counsel. And Newton felt called to preach the gospel, and, and Whitfield encouraged him. And when, when Newton went to the church authorities, his church, the Church of England, they knew that he had um, been friends with Whitfield, and they didn't like that. And they didn't want any more Whitfields at that time. And so they refused him a church anywhere, uh, really on, w without you know, real foundation. Newton, by the way, was, hope, was thinking of becoming a dissenter, a, a preacher in a non-Church of England church. And it was Whitfield that kind of kept him there. Thornton helped him get a church. Thornton um, supported his pub the publication of his literature. Um, he funded the anti-slavery efforts of Newton and Wilberforce. And this godly, um, consistent, generous Christian man passes away. Newton's wife wanted Newton to go to the funeral. He was worried because she had sunk physically again. Uh, but she insisted that he go. And so he went and spent some time with her before he went. And, um, and, and he went ahead and went to the funeral. That next month that followed between the death of Thornton and the death of Newton's wife was pretty grim. Uh, Mary loses her eyesight. She loses her ability to speak and her nerves were shattered. She could still hear. And Newton writes that if he entered the room and whispered her name, it greatly distressed her. And so it, it was a difficult month 
for her and him. Now, I didn't mention earlier that she did rally again around this time, late 1790, and she once again found assurance of God's covenant of grace and that she was a member of that. She was in Christ, and she was assured of God's love and His faithfulness to her, and she was able to express that to John. So there was some comfort there. Right, right. Uh, On December 12th, Sunday morning, John's about to go preach, and he stops by her bed on the way, and he kneels beside her, and he can tell that things are getting really close to death now, and he, he weeps, and she wants him to go ahead and preach. He asks her to raise her hand if her heart is at peace. She can't talk. She raises her hand, and he goes and preaches. When he gets back, Uh, He finds that she's lost her ability not only to speak or to see, but also to hear. She's struggling to breathe and groaning in pain. He thinks that uh, the end is close, but actually she lasts Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, all the way to Wednesday evening. Uh, The doctor is called, of course, and they try to do what they can to alleviate her suffering. He writes, I hope her sufferings will soon be over, but the Lord's hour and minute must be the best. He sits beside her the last two hours of her life, and he really is concerned that his own faith might be overwhelmed by the sorrow of this loss. But we find when we read his letters to his friends that follow this time that God did, did in an extraordinary way, sustain him. So, um, Matt, why don't you read us one of the examples of that? Yeah, Newton describes the scene at her deathbed. I watched her with a candle in my hand two hours and a half, until I saw her draw her last breath a little before 10 in the evening of December the 15th. I then kneeled down by her with the servants in the room, and I thanked the Lord for her deliverance. I went to bed soon after, and I had a very good night's rest. Seldom had I had a better when she was alive and well. Now, Newton found that God so sustained him with his Uh, joy in the fact that she'd been delivered from this terrible period of pain, um, confidence that that she was now safely in the arms of Christ, that he was able to sleep better that night than he'd slept during the whole time. And that's understandable. But then he rises the next morning. He goes on to continue with some of his pastoral duties. And he even preaches three times in that day and goes and visits the sick in his church. Um, to some who uh, may not, or who may be looking from the outside, that was hard to understand. And he writes later on to his close friend, William Bull, to try to explain his behavior during that time. And he writes this. He says, Did I sink? Did I despond? Did I refuse my food? Did sleep forsake my eyes? Was I so troubled in mind or weakened in body that I could not speak? Far from it. The Lord strengthened me, and I was strong. No part of my public service was interrupted, and perhaps I never preached with more energy than at that period. It was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in my own eyes and in the eyes of my friends. Indeed, some who knew me not said that it was overdone and charged me with a want of feeling." Newton decided that he would take the funeral service. He really wanted to use the opportunity, um, you know, to witness to Christ's goodness, um, you know, even coming from the husband and uh, to preach the gospel. Now, some of the people in that day thought it was inappropriate for the husband to preach the funeral of his wife. Many of his close friends feared 
that, um, you know, that the emotional strain would be too much. And in the middle of the sermon, he would, he would falter. Yeah. Uh, but he didn't. And in fact, we have an eyewitness account of some of that sermon. I remember when a lad of about 15 being taken by my uncle to hear the well-known Mr. Newton, the friend of Mr. Cooper, the poet, preach his wife's funeral sermon in the church of St. Mary Woolnoth in Lombard Street. Newton was then well stricken in years with a tremulous voice and in the costume of the full-bottomed wig of his day. He had and always had the entire possession of the ear of his congregation. He began at first feebly and leisurely, but as he warmed, his ideas and words seemed mutually to enlarge. The tears trickled down his cheeks, and his action and expression were at times quite out of the ordinary course of things. To this day, I have not forgotten his text, Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. An interesting note about that passage is that 25 years prior to that, Newton reading through Habakkuk found that passage to be what he felt was, you know, to be so perfectly suited to be preached at a funeral that he set it aside to be preached at his wife's funeral should he outlive her and be strong enough to speak. So he never preached on that passage before that uh, service. Yeah. In, the, uh, in the funeral, he wanted to mention his wife's uh, qualities. And, uh, but as he got to preaching, he, he didn't want you know, to spend the time talking about her qualities instead of the qualities of our Lord. So he decided then that he would mention, you know, her faults. And uh, so as to magnify the fact that she needed a Savior too and had found a Savior. Um, but when he mentioned her faults, he gave this list, uh, things like this. Faults like excessive devotion to him. And so at the end of giving these, th this list of faults and shortcomings in his wife, uh, one of his friends after the funeral said, if these were her chief faults, what were her excellencies? You know, these aren't faults at all. Yeah. Newton continually referred to her after this point in, in three ways, at least. One, alone from God. So a gift, but, but a temporary gift. Secondly, the hinge on which so much of his life had turned. Providentially, God had placed her in his life in these key ways and really just the hinge on which his life had turned. And then thirdly, her death being a wound that only God could heal um, after her loss. Uh, on the second anniversary of her death, he wrote this. Do I not feel myself something more weaned from the world? Have I not been drawn to aim at a closer walk with thee? Hadst thou left me to myself, I should have either tossed like a wild bull in a net or have sunk under the burden of a broken heart. For during these two years, I have seldom passed two minutes together without feeling a void within that thou alone can supply. One of the ways that Newton dealt with his grief as it came, you know, in waves throughout the months and years that followed is that he edited and published a two-volume set of his letters to, uh, to Polly 
And uh, so here's an old set that I found years ago. And um, as I mentioned before, they just cover the early years of their marriage when he's away from her with work for so long at a time. They were not particularly popular when they first came out. Um, a lot of people, especially in Newton's you know, um, day, felt that they were too personal to be sent out. Um, Newton didn't. He wanted people to know the girl that he loved. However, they did become more popular through the years. And uh, one of his friends later in life complained that Newton was such a clever and loving letter writer that loving husbands would lose the esteem of their wives when they read these letters and say, why can't you write letters this way? Um, but in truth, the letters do have a spiritual value. I mean, and some, some of them are very witty. Um, when I bought this set, it was on our anniversary of uh, Misty and me, and um, I'd, I've tried to read a letter a night, and I've failed many more nights than I've succeeded, but we try to read a letter a night at times. And I remember reading a letter where, you know, he's in there and he's talking about there's a war within his soul. Brain and heart are at fight, he says. She kind of complained that he wrote so many letters and he complained that she wrote so few back. And so he says, look, I know I already wrote you a letter this morning, but I've got to write you another. Brain told heart, we've already written our letter today, but heart won out. So I'm sorry, I'm going to have to write another. You know, he just really funny. It's a, it's a, a unique insight into their love. But I, I would say about the letters, they aren't his most, they aren't his most spiritual writings. But as they go along, you do see John more and more using the letters as an opportunity to guide his wife to the fullness of Christ and how to live on that. Yeah. Well, Newton later spoke about the, the right view of the hard times that we go through in the Christian life. None of us are exempt from them, and but but how do we make good use of them? Newton wrote, Afflictions quicken us to prayer. It is a pity it should be so, but experience testifies that a long course of ease and prosperity without painful changes has an unhappy tendency to make us cold and formal in our secret worship. But troubles rouse our spirits and constrain us to call upon the Lord in good earnest when we feel a need of that help which we can only have from His almighty arm. Afflictions are useful and in a degree necessary to keep alive in us a conviction of the vanity and unsatisfying nature of the present world and all its enjoyments, to remind us that this world is not our rest, and to call our thoughts upwards where our true treasure is and where our heart ought to be. When things go on much to our wish, our hearts are too prone to say, it is good to be here, referencing there Peter's words uh, to the Lord at the Transfiguration. Um, when I was uh, first brought to the Lord, age 20, um, the man that led me to the Lord uh, recommended that I read a Newton hymn. Now, the only Newton hymn that I had been familiar with was Amazing Grace. So he, he handed me the hymn uh, that starts like this, how tedious and tasteless the hours. And it's a, great, it's a great illustration of what you just read. Let me just read two verses from that. How tedious and tasteless the hours when Jesus no longer I see. Sweet prospects, sweet birds and sweet flowers have all lost their sweetness to me. The midsummer sun shines but dim. The fields strive in vain to look gay. 
But when I am happy in him, December's as pleasant as May. And my favorite verse in, in the hymn says this, Content with beholding his face, my all to his pleasure resigned. No changes of season or place could make any change in my mind. While blessed with a sense of his love, a palace, a toy would appear. And prisons would palaces prove if Jesus would dwell with me there. It's a wonderful summary of, of Newton's walk with the Lord. And it's not just for Newton, it's for us. Now that the Puritan film is out and shipping, after two years of working together with Reformation Heritage Books and Puritan Reform Theological Seminary, we're here in Tupelo, Mississippi, where we've gathered some friends and family together just to screen the film as a way to celebrate. We spoke to one family who'd come out to see the film. First, the father, Scott, and then two teenagers, Claire and John. Um, I was glad they got exposed to that, but uh, I, I needed it more probably than as much as they did because uh, a lot of it I, I didn't know. So um, uh, hearing the, the history and the devotion and the work of God, God's done in the Puritan's life is uh, convicting and inspiring and uh, will encourage each other. To, uh, to follow their example, not to be Puritans, but to be true Christians. For me, I just think the whole thing was very convicting and just, I got a sweet taste of just like what it's like to be spiritually minded again, because it's so easy to just kind of fall into, I don't know, I'm just getting caught up in things of the world. And so I just think like to be encouraged in their devotion and their just seriousness was just convicting in my life and just, I know it's going to motivate me in my, in my walk with the Lord to be more careful. It's convicting to our community especially that we, I mean, the Puritans were what we could call what a Christian should be, and we fade in comparison so much to them and to think that, what does that mean we are? Are we good Christians if we aren't what they were and what we believe to be? They were good Christians, so it is convicting, of course. For more information about Puritan, all of life to the glory of God, visit themeansofgrace.org. Newton outlived his wife by nearly 17 years. And in the last stages of his own life, his health was failing, he was blind, but still he served the Lord in his limitations. And that was partly by the help of his adult adopted daughter, Betsy. On December 21st, 1807, uh, John Newton lay dying and he was surrounded by loved ones who, who you know, who were concerned that, uh, that his departure was close. And his final words to them were these, I am still in the land of the dying. I shall be in the land of the living soon. Thanks for listening to the Behold Your God podcast. All the scripture passages and resources we mentioned in the podcast are available in this week's show notes at mediagratiae.org slash podcast. That's M-E-D-I-A G-R-A-T-I-A-E dot O-R-G. You can also get there by going to themeansofgrace.org. You can watch the podcast there through our YouTube channel or subscribe via iTunes, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcast feed. The Behold Your God podcast is a production of Media Gratia. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible study series, documentaries, and other multimedia projects that we produce, let me invite you to have a look around for materials that you can use in your church, small groups, Sunday schools, or family worship at mediagratie.org. If you're one of our monthly supporters, jump over to mediagratie.org where you'll find the link to this week's supporter appreciation episode. 
This is weekly bonus content that we produce as just one tangible way to say thank you to those of you who believe in what we do and come alongside of us monthly to help us continue doing it. If you're interested in becoming one of our supporters, whether that's through a one-time gift or a monthly commitment of any amount, visit mediagratier.org and click on the donate button. Once you've done that, we'll get in touch and we'll give you access to our whole library of supporter appreciation material just shortly after. As with everything that we do, we never want finances to be a legitimate barrier between our content and those who would benefit from it. If that's you, reach out to us at info at mediagratier.org. We'd love to hear your feedback there on this episode, questions, comments, or any other subject that might be on your mind. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.